0: The nightmare continues. (laughs) Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday afternoon read. I apologize because for some reason, maybe my internet took a dump at some point because of the wind and the weather, but the majority of you did not get any notification of this um, read today. So I just resent the notifications. So if you happen to be online, I didn't, I did not forget to send stuff to you. I just, The stupid notifications didn't work. I just resent everything. But anyway, welcome. Happy Sunday. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. We're going to be reading from a book today. And it's a nice day to do it. It's raining. So if you're in California, especially Sacramento area, you can curl up and uh, put your slippers on and all that good stuff and uh, listen, you know, and just get your hot cocoa or whatever it is you drink. Maybe something stronger. And uh, listen to me read this book. This book's excellent. Where we left off. Excuse me. Where we left off was Anna Maria. Anna Maria writes about her own experience and buying a um, old Victorian, an antique Victorian chair at a flea market, and she takes it back to her college dorm, and she kind of starts experiencing stuff, which ha- which happens, you know, uh, quite a- more often than not with paranormal investigators. All right. For you guys that don't know me, I'm also the owner of the California Haunts. I can turn this down a little bit today because there's no ACM. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. We're 45 strong up and down the state, and we can help you with any paranormal needs that you have. I want to just let everybody know the main website for California Haunts is down uh, because we're moving it to a new server and we're working on some real cool stuff, you know, on the site to make it a lot more user-friendly. So if you need to get a hold of the paranormal team use the California haunts radio server, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, or check us out on Facebook. Uh, Cause we're on, you know, we're on Facebook. There's two California haunts sites on Facebook. California haunts Ghosty events is on Facebook. You know, I'm on Facebook. It's all public. So you can find the, the team there as well. Twitter also check out Twitter. Cause we're on Twitter. We're also on Instagram, but we're not under California haunts. We're under ghosty gal. That's what I go by is ghosty gal. So, um, Yeah, you can find me there. Or TikTok. California Haunts is over on TikTok. So there's all kinds of ways to find the team if if you need help with something paranormal. Anyway, um, I'm glad there's two of you here. I'm kind of killing some time to get some more people in here because I don't know who we're going to have or how we're going to have. Because, like I said, it was supposed to send stuff out this afternoon and they didn't go. So I'm assuming it was an Internet issue. You know, because it's really weird. It was 18-mile-an-hour winds, which isn't bad, but I mean... It's bad enough, you know, enough for my gazebo to be tossed around and stuff. So um, it probably, the internet at that at that particular time when I was firing the things off went down. So let me get this set up. Um, again, if you have messages for me uh, live, I, I can't get to them because what I'm doing is, hang on, let me do this. Okay, let me put this over. Because what I'm doing is that... Um, I'm happy to read because it's a PDF, so I'm reading it off. I'm reading it off the main screen. So let me get up to chapter eight because that's where we left off, and I'll get this queued up for everybody, and everybody can go grab your snacks, your popcorn and snacks, right? Like the thing says. Oh, there we go. Let me go back one. Okay. All right, there we are. Let me enlarge this because I'm blind. Bat. There we go. My mother could read this at this level. <laughs> okay. I mean, my eyes are a little dry, so I'm going to make adjustments for that, too, today. Anyhow, um, well, again, I want to welcome everybody. We are here. We're on the air. I got four people. Wow. <laughs> at least somebody got my note, you know. <laughs> I was surprised when I came in here to sit down because Pamela had asked. Pamela didn't see the link, and I thought, that's weird. Started to search through the links went. So, Okay. It's raining. It's nice. It's windy, but it's nice. We need the rain, so it'll be raining through tomorrow for us. Sunny California doesn't always rain, depending where you live. If you live up north, you freeze. So, I mean, it's a big difference here. You're either cold or hot. So, again, when we left off, Anna Maria had gone to a flea market and purchased a Victorian-era Victorian chair for like $35, and she took it back to her dorm room. And this is where we start. And she had all kinds of strange things going on in the dorm room. And so now we're at the point where her friends want her to get rid of this thing. A priest, I'm going to just update you guys, a priest even saw the ghost. Because she's, she's at a Catholic college, right? So he wanted to do like an exor- like a cleansing or an exorcism on the room itself and on the chair. But they haven't got that far yet. Right now she's talking with her her friend who helped her bring the chair to the dorm. About getting rid of the thing, all right. So that's where we're at. So we're in chapter eight. So I see a bunch of people coming in. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm excited. I see my sister in the chat room. Pamela's in the chat room. Pamela's in the house. So let me get this uh, ready to go and uh, let's rock and roll. Right. We'll continue. We'll read for about an hour. And this is a PDF, so I am reading it off my main screen. So if my eyes get, I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna like lubricate my eyes real quick so don't get grossed out. So let me lubricate real fast, make sure I can see stuff, because I was just taking a nap too, a little while ago. So my contacts are dry. Okay. Okay. But anyway, I hope everybody else is enjoying this wonderful weather. Last night it didn't rain, but I had because I, I have a screen on my front door, so I left it open all night, you know, and uh, just sat there. And I don't sleep because it's nice and cool, you know. It's just not. It's just really nice to relax. Even the dogs enjoyed it last night. Okay. So here we go. Apparently, because um, I don't remember exactly how it was when we left off, but apparently, I guess the, the priest finally contacted her because this is where we're starting. So Father McMillan was prompt, right on the minute. He stood. He stood outside my door at seven p.m. Denise, Emmy, the room advisor, Jean, and myself were in the room. He was dressed in what I called priestly garb at the time—a purple—a purple stole a white gown and black shoes, as far as I can remember. He had a Bible he had a Bible with him, a large crucifix, and a large vial of holy water, which he opened once I let him in. He also had a relic of a saint, I forgot which one. He had actually been a priest for some time by the time he joined the campus ministry, and used to teach at another college in the Midwest. This I learned after after the blessing, an affair that seemed brief and to the point. What I do remember is how the room seemed to warm up without the thermostat being jacked up. He intoned prayer after prayer, asking us to join in. And the chanting made the room cheerier, hopeful and warm. I know it wasn't my imagination. Let me enlarge this a little more. There we go. Now, now my mother could read this thing, I'll tell you. Okay. I know it wasn't my imagination. Let's see where I'm that's Sorry, I moved it up. My fault. Okay. Did made the room? Okay, I know it wasn't my imagination. I do remember that. I remember being hopeful that the beautiful chair was mine forever until I moved it to my very own house. I remember the scent of burning leaves outside even though the window was closed. I remember the scent of a candle. Let me move this over taking taking over the room borrowed from Emmy who loved candles. It conjured visions of Christmas as if it were hollyberry He walked out, contented that whatever came with the chair had left us in peace. After all, in two weeks, it would be Christmas. I called Dave from the hall phone as soon as the write was over, telling him how it went and how relieved I was. He said, Elise, give it a week or two. We'll be gone for Christmas break and hopefully we'll come back to a peaceful room and you and I can sleep. But less than two days had gone by when the next event happened. I remember it was a Wednesday since midterms were over. Chapter 9 Dave wanted the chair out. I guess because his intentions were strong, he ended up being left alone, his nights full of study and deep relaxed sleep. On my end, I held on to the wish that I could keep the chair, a bargain considering how, how it looked and felt when I sat on it. I felt expensive, classy, even important. I found out shortly. I found out shortly that my desire to own it didn't sit well with the previous owner. Then the blessing. On the third night after the blessing, I woke up to screaming right outside my window. Lights came on, the hall lights flooded under the doors, and the room advisor came padding down the hall, checking everyone. Voices from the rooms, doors opening, slippers, slippers flooded the hallway. I emerged into chaos, still partly asleep after several nights of worry and restless study. A woman in her 40s and a nun dressed in headgear and civilian clothes were busy explaining to the room advisor, who appeared very troubled. They proceeded to enter Bernice's dorm room, and I wrapped my robe around me and followed a few of the girls, including Denise and Emmy, to Bernice's room. I felt like a gawker. One of those people you see who watch a car accident minutes before the ambulance arrives. But Bernice was a friend of sorts. And we wondered what had happened at the at two AM that involved her. Bernice was actually standing outside her door, appearing to be flabbergasted and obviously awakened from sleep. Her room's window was over the portico, and three women, the nun, the advisor, and another woman, whom I didn't know, were all crowded around the window. They were watching whatever was transpiring on the ground below the portico. Below by the portico. You okay? I asked Bernice. She's fine, Emmy replied on Bernice's behalf. They knocked on my door after the screams. I just figured I'd move out of the way, Bernice replied. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry. They knocked on on my door after the screams. I just figured I'd move out of the way, Bernice replied. So she wasn't involved. I walked in as soon as the nun and the room advisor walked away from the window and hurried down the elevators, their middle-aged shoes padding down the hall. Whatever was happening was outside, as I thought. The woman stranger was a resident artist and introduced herself. She walked away and marched towards the elevator banks to join the other two women. Through the window, we looked. A nun was outside in a jogging outfit, one of her sneakers off as if she had fallen. Was she mugged? It was not that type of neighborhood, but there's always a first time, I thought. Then an ambulance came. Two technicians approached the, approached the nun, their bags opened. They appeared to be a they appeared to be putting a bandage on a leg. Eventually, the woman stood, limped, and was ushered into the back of the ambulance. Behind us, the room advisor had returned. She briskly clapped her hands on like a school teacher to a bunch of school kids, prodding a return to our rooms. Someone must have hit her on the leg. She got mugged. A nun, imagine that. She was just jogging and so on and so on. I shut the door, turned up the heat, and slipped promptly into oblivion. In the cafeteria, I carried my tray of eggs, pre-made hash browns, and a bowl of Cheerios sans milk, and approached the customary table of suspects, my New York friends. Among them sat Dave, all huddled together. Denise sat near the center of the long table and looked up first as I approached. They all stopped and looked up at me as I plopped my tray down and sat. Bernice, Not normally a table member, was there too. She spoke first. The nun? She made up with your lady on the infamous chair. Your lady of the infamous chair. With the hat and heels? Dave appeared terrified behind his Coke bottle glasses. Denise nodded grimly in agreement. She looked piqued. Almost sordid. How did you guys find out, I ventured. Apparently, Marcy had been listening to the room advisor talk to the nun. The nun was jogging back down towards our building, and there was a woman there, all dressed like Marcy saw. Same description. What happened to the nun? She saw the woman, thought she was kind of odd, jogged past her, and before you know it, the woman's eyes were blazing as the nun jogged by. Denise swallowed, warming to her story. Then Marcy interjected, The same woman I saw exit your room. She was downright glaring at the nun. So the nun did a double take and got really scared. The woman ran after her, but she saw the woman was floating, Denise finished. Marcy nodded, her face stunned. Snickers from the group, but Marcy and Denise weren't laughing. Then before she knew it, the slap on her leg, and she fell. What happened to the woman who was floating? This was Dave. She disappeared, Denise interjected, nervous laughter. Another tray plopped at the end of the table. It was Joy Bernard. I got an idea. Dave interrupted. This isn't a game, Joy. I'm not treating it like a game, Joy said defensively. Guys. Denise, the, self, the self-proclaimed the re- self referee. Let's toss it, one said. Yep. Okay, where? Town dump is where it's headed, another said. Now, get Father McMillan again, another said. I told him I had tried the blessing, and I was willing to open, you know, open any suggestions. Dave raised his hand. Yes, Dave. Let's allow the priest another chance, okay, Elise? Yes. I feel like we need to leave this up to the ministry. I agreed. But the priest may not be available for another week. This from Bernice. Joy? Denise ventured? Dave rolled his eyes. Joy was ready. <clears throat> I got a plan while you I got a plan while you arrange with Father McMillan. First you need to move the chair out of the dorm, as she doesn't like it there. Chapter ten. Dave single-handedly hauled the chair and sat on it as he descended the elevator. I followed, jumped in, and off we went. Downstairs, Marcy, Denise, and I uneventfully hauled it on, onto his beetle. Then the short trip to the beach <clears throat> where our friends Trey and Lucas lived facing the, local, facing the local beach. At the time, we thought a rental was the ideal place where Joy Bernard could do what she felt might work to get rid of the occupant of the chair. Indifference to them and in my own selfish stubbornness to hold on to the chair, I agreed for a seance to be conducted by our self-proclaimed psychic friend. Call us sophomoric, childish, dramatic, you choose, but it seemed to make sense while we waited for the ministry and was a measure to get the chair off campus and the university out of our hair. Little did we know what could result from such an act. Not one of us was even of the legal drinking age. None of us was, okay, I'm sorry about that, I have to move it up, so, you know, none of us was even of the local drinking age of the day, though it was 18 at the time. Our decisions were based on a bunch of sophomores looking for some excitement. I believe now, several years later, as a much wiser and better informed adult, that staging a seance was downright foolish, if not dangerous in retrospect. Early in December... Our early December sent gales of laughter, of laughter, of laughing wind, mocking us collectively in our foolish attempt to rid the chair of the occupant. Connecticut, in the early 1980s, way before we had any awareness of global warming, exuded its typical New England landscapes a bending wind, a beach strewn with white wafting water, and rolling waves on a gray landscape. The beach house, one of several, faced the Atlantic less than 30 yards from the surf. The mood presented an appropriate nor'easter for what we were about to do. The front of the rental house meant for beachgoers was a double-glassed-in porch of sorts, windows shut this time of year. Brown cedar shingle siding, which is typical of the area, wrapped the humble house from the elements. With the advent of winter, Trey and Lucas had sealed the porch windows in plastic to reduce the drafts that might invade the front living area and kitchen which housed a stone fireplace and cold wooden floors. The plastic was such that whatever view of the ocean was there during the summer months was obliterated by the translucent covering, more functional than aesthetic to help with the heating bills of two college students. Joy positioned the chair by the wide fireplace, the logs now crackling with tendrils of a growing fire, as if someone were going to sit and read to us some campfire stories. She asked us to sit a few feet away at a round table dining at a round wooden dining table positioned in the center of the room. It was pockmarked with the remains of a pizza from the from last night's dinner or from last Friday's dinner. <clears throat> Excuse me. Lucas cleared the debris, wiping it off with an old t shirt from an like, wiping it off with an old t shirt from, from, from an eponymous guitar concert. I hope I said that right. The eight of us sat, Dave to my right, Trey to my left. Joy had the chair behind her, closest to her in proximity, with her back to the fireplace. Dave's two roommates, there out of curiosity, sat to either side of Joy, with Lucas and Bernice making up the rest of the table. Armed with a large candle with three wicks and salt sands crystal ball, Joy plopped the candle on a small plate provided by Lucas on the fireplace hearth and made a circle of salt around it. Then she lit it. Don't you want it on the table, Trey asked? No, but this will be. With a flourish, Joy unfolded a Ouija board, tatty and dusty, the kind you see from Hasbro. She took a small shot glass and placed it on the center fold of the board and told us to put one finger on it. We all reached, curious, as we'd never participated before. Confident she had done this for quite some time, we never asked. We awaited further instructions. Joy leaned back, shut her eyes, and then asked Trey to turn all the lights off. Dave protested. Then East asked if we could at least keep one light on. <clears throat> Joy acquiesced. And Trey left, uh, left on the hallway light leading to the stairs. Now, in semi-darkness, the effect made the fireplace and candlelight eerie dancing against the walls and producing shadows made by us. It was just about five on a bleak Sunday Saturday afternoon, but the shortening days made the outside beach appear as twilight. Dave, who sat next to me, facing Joy across the table, nudged me. In the semi-darkness, I glanced at him. His eyes pointed at the chair behind Joy. My eyes followed his. The chair. Despite the fact that the chair was right next to the fireplace with a roaring fire of four logs, it was in darkness. It was placed right near the stone hearth and should have been lit by the fireplace and the three-wick candle on the hearth. I looked at Joy as she began to address the chair, ignoring Dave. It appeared she was murmuring a prayer. Her face in shadow. Joy then began to raise her voice. Whoever is here with us, please give us a sign. Our fingers rested on the bottom of the small glass, waiting. Silence. Joy intoned again. Whoever is here with us, give us your name. Silence. Bernice withdrew her finger, shaking her arm. Joy opened her eyes. You have to keep your finger on the glass, she told Bernice. Then the glass moved. Skimming over the surface of the board before Bernice could place her finger back, it went to the letter G. G, said Joy. Bernice's finger joined ours. The glass moved to O. O, oh, said Joy. Silence. Go where? Joy asked. Silence. Then the glass cup moved again. G. O. Please tell us where to go. Silence. Then a breeze and a chill behind me. I turned, glancing at the stairwell, where there, where there was a light. Denise looked, following my line of sight. Dave shifted to look behind us. That's probably the draft from the stairs, said Lucas. Please Please keep from talking, Joyce said. Spirit, tell us where to go, Joyce said again. Denise took her finger off. My arm's freezing in this position. She she began shaking it. The rest of us followed as Denise asked for a break. It had been at least 30 minutes. Okay, hang on, okay. It moved, so give me a second. Okay. Bernice, what did go mean? We sat shaking our arms, freeing up the spasm of the position we had been in, with one arm extended. The cup moved. Joy's eyes, now open, became large. Who's moving it? I gawked as the cold entered the room. Denise, then Lucas, then Trey stood. The glass stopped. Okay, Joy, can you... Dave, Joy replied. Let's all put our fingers on it again, people. We all placed one finger on the glass bottom. Then it happened. The glass began to move in earnest, skimming the surface. Go. Go? From Joy. And moved to the word, yes. Yes, Joy repeated. And moved again to yes. Where? Dave asked. Then the glass moved rapidly. Our fingers almost strained with a quick, unexpected movement. A-W-A-Y. Joy's face mirrored shock. Away. Joy said in a loud voice. Go away, Dave clarified. The glass flew across the table into the fireplace, shattering the glass. The candle blew out. The light from the stairwell winked off. Darkness. The fireplace logs began to weaken, plummeting the room in even darker, even deeper dark. I stood, ready to run. Dave. This was Denise. She was looking at the chair. You see it, Elise? Joy turned to look behind her at the chair. Someone's here. I looked away, stood, I moved out of the circle and reached for the crucifix on my chest, pulling it out. Joyce shot up and moved away from the table. Her eyes were wide. The plastic wrapping ripped off the windows. The windows slammed open, blasting cold air. A wind blew the board off the table. I was out the door, down the steps with Dave and Bernice at my heels. The tide was gaining. Gus. As we turned to look back at the house from, from the sand, Denise was running down the front steps, grasping her coat. Trey, Lucas, and Dave's roommate followed us at, at the rear. The screen door slammed back and forth. Dave ran back for Joy, who finally exited down and under the sand, joining us. Dave looked pointedly at me. Did you see her? I, I don't want to see. I realized I had been shaking, even before the chill had set in the room despite the roaring fireplace without a coat on i caught myself still holding on the crucifix around my neck joy was terrified i have to go back and use the bathroom you guys get your coats and i'll get the rest of the stuff what about the chair you can't leave that damn thing in. you can't leave that damn thing in there Trey was terrified and all looking at the house as if it was on fire lucas ran in joy followed minutes later they both reemerged Joy had the board, folded it, and wrapped it in a blanket. I can't destroy it. It will have to be stored somewhere safe. Lucas was carrying the chair. Dave met, Dave met him, and they both carried it towards the water line. Let the tide carry it away, Lucas Lucas backed away. They all turned to me. What do we do with it? Denise asked, her eyes, her eyes bulging and glistening with fear. Or the cold. Let the water take it. You can You can't destroy it. It will make her angry. Joy was adamant. The winds regaining. Let it go where it wants. I I turned away, dismayed. Everyone followed as I turned my back, facing the porch door, away from the winds. We had to go back inside eventually. Then, through the open windows, I saw the light from the stairwell come back on. The house was a mess. Trey and Lucas, with our help, dried the floors, shut and secured the windows, and placed the plastic back on. Our evidence, the shattered shot glass, is still in the fireplace. Through the glass door, we watched the chair sitting at the edge of the surf, the water lapping at its legs. Someone called the landlord. It was Denise, pragmatic as, old, as ever. I moved out of the dorm at the end of the semester shortly before Christmas break. I joined Denise in, in the upperclassmen dorm across campus and well away from the St. Justina Hall in spring. The room had a bad vibe after that. A year later, Dave and I returned with joy to the flea market, hoping to locate the vendor who sold me the chair. We never found him. So the origins of the chair remain a mystery. Trey moved to a neighboring town, where he joined two other art majors in an old Victorian house. The experience of the seance made Trey, the more adventurous of the two, curious, Lucas, Born from a superstitious family, would not return to the beach house and only stayed a week after our seance. He contacted the landlord, who had a trash company hauled away, as even the tides would not take it. Lucas moved to an upperclassman dorm. The Victorian house Trey subsequently rented, with two other students, was reported to be haunted by a girl who used to cast spells in the attic of the house. The girl's mother reportedly saw a creature with talons, which followed her to her car. When Trey returned to the beach home with Lucas one last time and scanned the house for any debris or remaining furniture, he invited him to the new digs, the Victorian house, and Lucas declined after hearing of its history. Trey kept in touch through the years, moving to Massachusetts to attend med school and eventually to Canada, where he's a practicing psychiatrist. His story of the haunted Victorian house he rented with two other men, both artists, is in a future nonfiction novel, The Talisman. The last and final story in this compilation comes from Trey's father, George, who ran an antique store in neighboring Rhode Island. It's uncounty uncounty how, how small the world can be, as the issues at his father's shop began around the time I finally disposed on a chair. Part two the, the Okay, I'm going to try and say this without blowing it. The, the, the Chino Siri urn i to go with that. Let's see. Chapter 11. It was all about timing. When Augustina entered the shop in Cordoba, she recognized her great-grandfather's trademark ceramics. If she had entered a week later, she would not have seen them, as tourists usually come in droves in buses, taking every piece of earthenware as if they were priceless. They sold that quickly. After three generations of ceramic makers, she was the first to move away into the Barcelona area and take a job unrelated to her ancestral roots, accounting. Then she met an American and found herself moving to the U.S., to New England, in a small coastal town and running a store, an antique shop, that had been her husband's family for a few generations. That was all about timing, too. I got lost here. Okay, sorry about that. (laughs) <laughs> I apologize, but every time I move this up, it jerks on me, so. Okay, I see you guys. Just give me a second. Okay, let's see. Then she met an American and found herself moving to the U.S. to New England, in a small coastal town, and running a store, an antique shop, that had been in her husband's family for a few generations. That was all about timing, too. If she had not been working in Barcelona at that particular store, Standing by the front door instead of inside it in the accounting office where she usually could be found, she would not have, had, she would not have met him, the American antique dealer from New England. Augustina's degree in business came in handy as she did the books, the legal stuff that makes the store a store, and was content. However, she had to learn all about antiques, a realm totally new to her, especially fine chinas, how rare when it was manufactured how many of each style, and what the marks on the bottom or handle or whatever changed. What made it a quality object, precious and coveted, highly in comparison to others? Her husband, Stanley, a curator and avid golfer, piled book upon book on Augustina related to the craft. Books on art history, antique art, furniture, porcelain, etc. She loved the jewelry in particular, as she adored wearing the ornate pieces, and then there was fine bone china. While he played golf in the summer sun where the Kennedys in their where where okay, where the Kennedys in their sporty V necks used to play. She touched and marveled at every piece of jewelry that came lovingly wrapped or set in satin. Years later, the two teens in the house with two teens in the house, Augustina, was a proud antique dealer in her own right. And traveled around the world she did with Stanley, a comfortable American couple of means. They cultivated an eye for the unusual, valuable and rare. However, once in a while, Augustina indulged by seeking pieces that were fun, vintage objects that were not yet antiques but complemented the decor. She had begun a, a, a chinoiserie collection, blue and white porcelain pieces of Chinese origin. It was a game of sorts to determine which ones were f- were fakes, vintage, or older with value. Her parties were hits with guests when the guests marvelled at which pieces were authentic. And which were which were from contemporary decor shops. Towards the end of one particular winter, Augustina was in a small street in a far off, in far off Krakow, Poland. When an object caught her eye, a large urn. The piece she learned from the shop had been made prior to World War One. Augustina returned to their hotel and researched the urn, wary of the vendor she had not met before. It was from the It was from the Qing Dynasty. The shopkeeper, a man of Hungarian descent, indicated it was from the late 1800s, procured from a house sale at the end of World War II. She did a double take when she returned to inspect it in more detail, now with Stanley in tow. It looked to be in perfect condition, almost as if it were new. Stanley was not too eager to purchase it, as it was expensive and appeared to be only a few years old. However, Augustino was so eager to have it that he eventually gave in despite his misgivings. Perhaps, he agreed, it was just that, expensive, because it was in perfect condition. So perfect, he indicated, though a studied look in his eyes gave away his, his apprehension. But given he finally did, after negotiation for after he negotiated for a better price, and the vendor agreed. That done, they made arrangements to ship it and took the Certificate of Authenticity back to the the room for further research. However, as with any avid buyer, eagerness made them neglect to open the urn and inspect the interior, as they neither would. The vendor, a man used to heavy drink, buxom like a woman with soft hands and a predilection for heavy sweaters, marked the urn's shipping label for his class. He encased it in bubble wrap and carefully blanketed it in a layer upon layer of crumbled Polish newsprint. It was insured, bedded, and handled with great care. Chapter 12 A large brown box, three times the size of the family dog's crate, emerged from the back of the UPS truck. When the parcel man rang, he peered at a hallway with high ceilings, heavy mahogany paddling, and sconces on the walls. A large and stately brownstone house Wrapped by a garden with a black wrought iron fence greeted the UPS man who stood waiting with a clipboard. At the front door, a very meticulous petite Filipino woman, Vilma, smiled and opened the door. She had been with the couple for decades and had supervised one babysitter after another when the couple's younger daughter was still a small child. With both children now beginning college, Vilma was now left to herself while Augustina and Stanley Traveled to procure antiques to keep hours at the shop. Or keep hours at the shop. This was one of those quiet afternoons. After grocery shopping, when Vilma had the house to herself to do some mending she had been putting off. And even walk the dog. Mops, a large British mountain dog. Okay, hey, I'm going to turn this light off because I think I got a lot of glare coming out of it. Vilma had just started mending her own clothing. spending, spendthrift as she was when the doorbell gave off its distinct chime. The dog followed her as she descended the stairs, her slippered feet patting on the carpeted steps. When she opened the door, the UPS man was at the ready. His clipboard and pen paused in midair for her to sign. He had a look of frustration on his youthful face, as if she had taken too long to respond. She signed after glancing at the correct address until he proceeded to recount how the box was incredibly heavy. As if it were resisting his attempt to take it out of his truck, Vilma then asked if he would help her bring it in, as she herself, now in her late 40s, had a bad back. The man looked at his watch, leaned down and nudged the package with a hand to see, as if to awake, awake it from slumber. He said it might, in fact, be too heavy for both of them to carry over the threshold. No, we'll just drag it across the floor if necessary, she said. It's too valuable to sit on the front step. Vilma put her hands on both sides of the box as he reached under to support the weight from falling, giving her the lighter in the deal. The box proved lighter than she thought. She looked back at the youth in amazement, wondering wondering what if okay, what if anything could be wrong with him? As soon as the box was in the foyer, the Burnies began barking an alarm from behind her. He had been watching from the sidelines since the bell rang and was now in a frenzy, whining and barking as if an intruder had entered the house. Vilma, who rarely heard the dog bark, quietly and and affable... I'm sorry, Vilma, Vilma, who rarely heard the dog bark, a quiet and affable breed by nature, stood watching perplexed. She wondered, she later accounted, if the dog needed to get out to do his business. She quickly wove her way through the large house, heading for the back door by the kitchen, calling out to Mops to come and exit. Mops would not cease furiously jumping at Velma's Japanese-style apron as he followed. Standing it, almost, the creases, un- the creases undulating, as his large paws made contact with the starch fabric. Velma heard the truck pull away from the gate, leaving the box inside the open front door. I am afraid, Vilma told Augustina later in a precise use of the English language when she returned from shopping. Mops never bark like that. Augustina was used to to, to Vilma's nature, a woman raised in the far-off provinces of southern Philippines who was shy and fearful of nature by nature. Nonsense, she replied. It's just a strange scent for mops. It's new to the house, and he will get used to it. Augustina entered the kitchen and saw the dog inside his crate like a large panda that had been scolded, frowning a dog's frown and whining. Then, leaving Vilma to prepare dinner, Augustina strode to the drawing room and stopped at the door where she saw the large, unopened box sitting on the carpet near the grand piano. Vilma, true to her strength, had been able to move the box away from the front foyer. Chapter 13 The French doors were open. The dimming light from her little, let's see, the dimming light from the patio casting a glow over the huge box. Augustina was excited that it came right on time to display it for her little luncheon party later that week. She strode over to her. Okay, i sorry. She strode over to her chinoiserie by the bay windows of the sitting room to examine where she could place the urn, and then went back to the drawing room. That's when she hesitated, wondering what was amiss. Then there was the stillness, too still. The hairs on my arm, she said, despite the last warm rays of the sun on the patio nearby were standing like static. She walked past the box and onto the flagstone patio, surveying the garden of fruit trees, apples, pears, and an arbor of grapes. At first, she thought, apples, I'm sorry, at first she thought, perhaps, there was a lightning storm coming that afternoon, which could account for the silence of the static. "'What's the matter with me?' she thought. "'The silence was etched in my ears like thick cotton,' she clarified, "'that it was like that when she was a child who suffered through an ear infection. "'Then she realized she, like Vilma, had an inexplicable fear. "'Suddenly throbbing her heart, she surveyed the garden, feeling, watching, "'her, side, her, her sides up like hackles of a dog. "'Here and there, the bird feeders were full of, weeds of seed, were full of wheels of seeds,' Nary a bird on them. Afraid of what? I inhaled, then blew out my stress, Augustina said. She re-entered, perplexed and confused. She was basically a calm and composed woman, not easily jarred. She had become anxious, like Vilma the housekeeper of 24 years, now a woman in her 40s. Augustina dallied around the box and recounted, I just had washed my hands, chapped as they were, and I reached... For the tape on top of the box where the shipping label had been affixed. The return address was from Poland. It was definitely the urn I had so fallen in love with. She peered again at her I'm sorry, she peered again at her Chino Siri collection by the bay windows in the next room. Sitting at attention like rows of compliant school children dressed in blues and whites of different shapes and sizes. Among the plants they sat among the plants they sat, merry and hopeful, like dogs waiting to be petted. Why do I feel so strange when I should be excited like a child on Christmas morning? Somehow the eagerness of the moment, which she usually experienced upon adding another blue and white, wasn't there. She found herself sitting on the piano bench, almost reluctant to open the box. Then the sound of birds chirping amid the rising susurrus of Vilma's and Stanley's voices made the room alive again. Augustina looked down at the box and began tearing, tearing away at the tape. A sound behind her. She leaped. Dinner's on. It was Stanley. Chapter 14, Vilma As Mam and sir ate, I returned to the kitchen and cleaned up. Pots and pans I had used, the scouring pad now worn, I replaced. I wrapped them up from the pantry closet and almost screamed when the mouse came running from between the rice bag and the potatoes. Oh no! I put the bag higher up on the shelf and made a note to buy some traps deliberating to myself when to tell the missus about the mice, She would not like it, nor would Sir, who was very clean and very particular about cleanliness. Mops would not like it either. Speaking of mops, I mopped the stone floor, which I had brought back. Okay, I'm sorry. Speaking of mops, I mopped the stone floor, wished I had brought back a bonnet or coconut husk with me on my last visit to, to the Visayas my hometown near the water near Cebu, outside Cebu. The husk made the floor shine and outdid what a stupid mop would do. Oh well. I mopped and mopped, adding Mr. Clean, then rinsed, and by then the dog was getting frisky and impatient. I let mops out the back door, and then ma'am was ready and summoned me to to clear the kitchen table. It was now my turn to eat, so I took my plastic plate, my large spoon, dug into the casserole, that I had made and sat on the stool facing the large back garden. Mops was doing what dogs do. Sniff, sniff and pee. But then suddenly rounded the side of the house where I could no longer see him. Mops was barking furiously again. It sounded like he was near the French doors in the drawing room by the piano. Actually, it sounded like he was tearing into something by the French doors. I stood from my stool, hoping he was busy digging somewhere in the garden, which was not like him either. But I knew tearing. But I knew tearing when I heard it. I walked out the kitchen door, made my way around the house, past the cherry tree that had been huge, that had a huge nest of wasps to be removed, past the dead peach tree that was sitting in the middle of the of the three-seater corner benches, and then saw Mops. He had stopped barking. Mops was sitting and watching. He was very still and looked bigger than he was. Then I realized it was because all his fur was standing. Something just inside the French doors, inside the drawing room, was tearing at the box. I approached approached in my slippers, the back flop of my flip-flops flicking against my heels. Too cold for flip-flops, but it was my slippers, and I liked what I was accustomed to. There was an animal tearing at the box. Its back was a very dark color. It turned at the sound of my breath. What is that? A huge pair of eyes, pupils wide. Madre de Dios, I ran. I heard my voice screaming. Back to the kitchen, then turned. Back to the garden. I must get mops. I cannot leave mops. It was bigger than mops. I grabbed mops as I looked at the creature. I dragged mops by the collar. It turned its back to me and kept tearing away. So heavy is mops. Mops finally followed me into the kitchen, through the door. I shut it, turned the lock, and turned. Mrs. was there. Mr. was there, both standing in the kitchen looking pale. Mops had a smell on him, clinging to his fur. He smells like crap, said Mrs. What was out there? It's inside the house. It's inside the house. Then Mr. ran. Mrs. ran behind him. Chapter 15 The drawing room was a mess. Polish newsprint was strewn all over the drawing room carpet. The Persian design obscured by small scraps of foreign newsprint torn into a million pieces. The plastic bubble wrap, or what remained of it, was flying in the breeze, some glinting in the fading light of the open French doors. Some clung with static to the furniture. Stanley secured the doors, surveyed the area, and darted up the steps to locate the creature. Shortly, He returned and helped Vilma pick up the papers, the plastic bubble wrap, and pieces of the cardboard box. Whatever you saw is no longer here. Vilma looked up. Where do you think it went, sir? Augustina approached the box. There, on one corner, where she had pulled the tape off, a hole had been made. Whatever did it had claws, the long scratch marks still evident on the box's sides. Cord. Augustina peered into the hole the animal had made. Inside was the urn, the intricate blue and white design, staring back at her. She sat on the carpet, pulling at the remains of the box, widening the hole. Finally, all sides were down, and the urn was in view. She looked at her hands, which were filthy with some sort of soot. She inspected the urn. Stanley raised a hand, covering his nose. No scratches? I smell it, said Vilma, a look of disgust on her face. Augustina stood, dusting off the soot from her pants. I need to wash my hands and change. Vilma gingerly approached the urn and touched the lid, inspecting it. Is the top closed? She struggled to turn the lid and open it. It will not open. Where do you want it, Mrs.? Augustina walked away. Just put it in near the chino in the next room, please. I'm taking a shower. Stanley stood, watching Vilma struggle with the urn. He appeared puzzled. Vilma, go ahead and wash the dog, please. I will take care of this. Stanley picked up the urn and carried it out of the room as Vilma followed Augustina, who was dismayed. Vilma approached Mops, took him by the collar, and pulled him through the French doors out, of the go- out into the garden. You smell, boy. That was a big skunk. Vilma turned on, on the hose, rinsing the dog behind her watching in the shadow by the corner of the stone wall was a dark form vilma hummed a tune and wondered why mops was whining as she shampooed his thick fur if a dog could look frightened he did she surmised she surmised as she rinsed his fur from head to toe just inside the sitting room just just inside the sitting room stanley was admiring the urn now positioned next to the chino to the china serie his eyes traveled the Vilma through the French doors that lined at one side One side of the house overlooking the patio and the garden beyond. He caught sight of something dark and moving, watching Vilma. Its eyes, yellow with pupils, made contact with him. Stanley stood back in surprise, accidentally hitting the urn with his foot. When he looked up again, whatever it was had disappeared. Stanley turned the lock on the French door open. Exiting quietly, Vilma had come in to dry mops in the kitchen, quickly. Chapter 16 It was all about timing. Augustina watched her husband recount what he had seen while he stood watching Vilma wash mops in the patio by the garden. She watched from her dresser, the beveled mirror showing his excited demeanor as she brushed her hair loose from the bun she, she had tidied up in. What would that thing have done to Vilma or the dog if you had not been watching? What did it look like? She wanted to know, as she didn't want anything to attack her lovely dog or her faithful housekeeper. Did you tell Vilma? Stanley looked concerned even as she strode towards him from and sat by his side at the edge of the four poster bed, an antique from Portugal. He didn't want to tell his wife that it was a skunk to a yeah, he didn't want to tell his wife that it was a skunk to allay her anxiety, even though it had certainly smelled up the entire drawing room, because it certainly wasn't. He began to feel that the dog was being stalked, if that made sense, or that the dog had made some animal angry. Skunks don't stare back at you with such menacing looks, in a size that rivaled Bernice, a dog about no, a dog about no pounds full grown, a oh, one hundred ten pounds full grown. What atta- had attracted the dog or the animal to the box? As far as he could tell, there was nothing organic or edible in that box. Or was there? He himself had tried to pry open the top of the urn and now wondered why it was so secure. As if it had been sealed on purpose. Whatever was inside had attracted a large animal of some type. And mops was on it. onto it. tomorrow, he told her, he would get something to pry loose the top of the urn. Then that would tell him, he thought, what animal could be attracted to it. Could it be food? Preposterous. Why would anyone store food in an urn? Why did they not open it at the store? Augustina shrugged when he asked, at a loss for words. She had no idea. Guilty. Some part of her felt guilty for bringing the urn to the house. They certainly didn't want vermin in the house. It was probably a raccoon looking at you, dear. Stanley shook his head. No raccoon. It didn't have the markings of one and that size. They don't grow to be that size, Augustina. Not in New England, anyway. Chapter 17 By the rays of the full moon, the patterns of the earth seemed to undulate. It was colored with blue background with the design of flowers in white, a reversal of color. Hearts rimmed around the top where the lid was secured. The French door shook with an unseen wind, the trees outside bending here and there like a swaying dancer. Mops was in his usual bolster bed on the landing at the of the second floor hall. Fast asleep, stretched out with paws past the bed like a drunken man in a stupor. One side of the hall was a balcony overlooking a view of the French doors in the dining room below. Farther down the hall, the dressing room, the adjoining bath, and finally the end of the hall, where the master suite of bedrooms was located. Augusta slumbered fitfully, her face turned in repose towards the towards the window that faced the front entrance, where the portico of car garages lay. Stanley was turned away towards the bedroom door. When the door opened, it was, however, Augustina, who detected the change in the air and the light from the hallway that told her the bedroom door had opened. Immediately, she sat up and turned towards the door. It was Vilma in the shadow. She felt annoyed, not having heard the living in housekeeper knock, but didn't mention it, as she saw the woman's face with a mirror of fear. What's the matter? Vilma stood looking at her, but remained quiet. Vilma? Then, without a word, Vilma walked out, leaving the door open. Puzzled, Augustina reached for her robe. Put on her slippers and padded to the door, glancing at her sleeping form at the sleeping form of her husband as she passed. In the hall she looked towards where the dog lay. Mop sat on his bed whining. He stood, sauntered over, tail between his legs, and entered the bedroom, leaping onto the bed. Augustina shut the door, leaving the dog with Stanley. Now, out in the hall, she looked around and saw that the window at the end of the hall was, was wide open. Wrapping her robe securely around her, she strode over the window and called out, Vilma? She looked at, out the window and down into the side garden. Satisfied, she shut the window and turned the lock. She turned. On the floor in the middle of the hall sat the urn, near their bedroom door. She gasped. Wil- Vilma? Silence. Augustina re-entered the room, not losing eye contact with the urn, which was only a few feet from the door. The dog was on her side of the bed, his eyes looked looking worried. Stanley, she nudged him. What? What time is it? Vilma was here. Why? She brought the urn, and it's right outside. Outside? Why? Stanley sat upright, searching for his glasses. He turned the lamp on. You're shaking. Augustina nodded emphatically. The urn. Stanley stood, strode to the door and opened it. Right outside was the urn. Why did Vilma bring it back up here? I don't know. I called her and she didn't come. She probably went back to her room. Stanley walked out past the urn and Augustina followed. Mops was right at at their heels, as if he didn't want to be alone. Stanley took the stairs and headed straight past the dining room towards the kitchen, switching lights on as he went. He stopped, right in front of an unmarked door, next to a pantry with shelves, jars, and bottles of foodstuff. He knocked. Vilma? Silence. Augustina approached, knocked. Vilma, are you there? Inside the small room, Vilma awakened and sat up, obviously fast asleep. Coming, ma'am. She pulled on her robe. Outside the door, Stanley and Augustina observed a weary and sleepy Vilma open the door. Sorry, Vilma. Were you just upstairs a few minutes ago? Stanley inquired, eyes adjusting to the dim light of the room, of the bedroom. No, sir. I went to bed at ten. Why? Augustina and Stanley looked at each other. You were at the door of our bedroom. Vilma just stared back at Augustine and puzzled. Stanley cleared his throat. <clears> throat> Did we wake you? Yes. Augustina looked at the kitchen clock on the adjacent wall. It was 2.30 a.m. We woke up and, well, the room turned cold. Vilma glanced back and forth between the couple. A knot formed in her throat. She felt a creepiness she could not shake. Ma'am, I was in my room here. Augustina held Mops by the collar protectively and looked towards the second floor. Chapter 18 Celia, green eyed, with strawberry blonde hair like Stanley, with the face of her mother, had just dragged in her luggage, a large affair in handsome leather. She looked up to survey the room. Late May flowers were in full bloom through the French windows. Celia breathed in as she casually sauntered into her mother's sitting room and sat on the settee, admiring the Chino Seri collection in the dimming glow of the afternoon. She pulled a large mobile from the pocket of her black jeans, texting. From the corner of her eye, she saw mops as the dog bounded up to at the sight of her, knocking the mobile from her hands. Vilma followed behind. Miss Celia, sorry, I didn't hear you. Did you eat? Are you hungry? Starved. Mops almost talked me over. She laughed as she petted the beautiful animal, which licked her face. I made cabbage soup. Awesome, thanks. She gave Vilma an affectionate peck on the cheek, and Vilma blushed in response. Celia grabbed her cell phone from the floor, dusting off some ash that clung from the carpet. The dog sniffed it, pulling back. Celia ushered the dog towards the French door to let him out, wiping the ashes on the side of her jeans. Vilma, in the act of of taking the young woman's luggage, placed it down quickly and grabbed the dog's collar. No, let's keep him inside until we're done, okay? Celia paused. No problem. Everything all right? What's that on your jeans? Nothing. Dust, I guess. Augustina appeared. Celia ran over and, like a small child, hugged and showered her mother with kisses. Mother and daughter examined each other. Mom, you look good, but you look peaked. Augustina glanced glanced at Vilma, giving her a knowing look. Let's eat and we'll talk. Celia looked around the room. Where's Dad? He's taking care of an antique we recently bought. Vilma had a rag in her hand and started dusting off Celia's jeans. Really, Vilma? Really, Vilma? I took a shower before I got on the train, Celia laughed. Vilma glanced at Augustina with a look of apprehension. Augustina examined her daughter's jeans. Sorry. It's the dust from the carpet. Celia strode off, leading the group to the kitchen. I'm starved. Vilma followed her down the hall. We have ham, too. Celia plunked herself down at the large cafe-style bistro table for six, arranged in the sunroom, where a series of windows looked out into the back garden. She looked up and marveled at the ceiling, which had a recent addition. Stanley had enhanced the sunroom by placing beveled mirrors on either side of the brass chandelier, one side reflecting a view of the garden beyond and the other the adjoining kitchen. Looks great, Mom. Augustina joined her daughter at the table, holding a steaming cup of tea, admiring her. She observed Vilma serving the hot cabbage soup with a medley of beef ribs, carrots, and ears of corn. Vilma served it in a soup tureen decorated with French dancing lords and ladies a Limoges piece of china Augustina had acquired from their last trip to the Paragon area in France. The cobalt blue tureen with the dancing lords and ladies complemented the pastel blue and cream theme of the kitchen and adjoining sunroom. Vilma produced a large soup bowl which she placed in front of in a in a celadon green color which exuded elegance but it was not an antique. Augustina thought She didn't want to risk using an antique set of dishes for daily use, or just in case it was haunted. Celia helped herself to the steamy soup, adding fish sauce to the mix to enhance the flavor. A bottle that Vilma had used in sautéing all all her cooking. Augustina marveled at how her daughter was so knowledgeable about international cuisine and soon art history and anthropology, which was Celia's double major. They were they were eating in silence when Celia insisted on Vilma joining them, as she had grown close to the loyal housekeeper she knew as a child. Augustina grabbed a soup bowl and signaled Vilma to join them. Without Sally there, Augustina felt more relaxed about the me—about the social mores. he appeared unwittingly imposed when it came to domestic help. Settled in with the three of them eating in companionable silence, Augustina decided it was as good a time as any to update her daughter on what had been happening during the past few odd weeks before her younger daughter, Cindy, joined them for the summer break. She didn't want either either one of them caught by surprise in the event that something else happened at the house. Vilma was in the act of putting away the dishes when Augustina raised her hand to stop her. Vilma, sit for a few minutes, please. Let's catch Celia up on what's happening. Celia looked back, attempting to surmise the reason for her mother's cautious tone. Mom, are you and Dad having problems? Oh, no, 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 no. Vilma replied emphatically. Augustina shook her head dismissively at Vilma. She wanted to explain without interruption. It's nothing like that. Thank goodness. It's about where your father is today because of a purchase we made in haste. Vilma qualified. They are arguing more, but it's because of the antique urn. Vilma, please. Augustina rolled her eyes. Celia looked on. Now interested. She sat back, arms folded, waiting. Augustina signaled Vilma to return to remain silent. In response to Vilma in response, Vilma stood up to turn on some lights, since the room was now in partial darkness as twilight approached. Celia, Celia watched Vilma as she walked from sconce to sconce, flicking a switch in the dining flipping the switch in the dining room, then in the kitchen, where the recessed lights cast a warm glow on the marble countertops and the cobalt blue stove. Celia Celia yawned, stretched, then leaned her head back to stretch her neck, shutting her eyes. Go on, Mom, I'm listening. I think we get it. What about... Celia opened her eyes and made eye contact with the ceiling mirrors. The dark creature with yellow eyes looked back at her from the mirror's reflection. Celia bolted upright and looked outside the windows. There it stood, right next to the stone water fountain. Then it vanished. Oh, my farking. Mom. Augustina stood. Augustina, Augustina turned and stood right by the window. She turned back to her daughter, who was now white as a sheet. What is it? And what was it? You didn't see that? Vilma bolted for the kitchen door, turning the lock. Augustina checked the locks on the windows. Where's mops, Mom? They ran out of the room. Chapter nineteen. Mops busily chewed paws, both furling on a rawhide. He was up in the bedroom. He was up in the bedroom hallway, ensconced on on the bed. When the women began running, he stood and padded down the stairs. Celia stopped, relieved, seeing Mops holding his rawhide on the chair landing, on the stair landing. She grabbed the rawhide and rubbed his ears. Glad you're inside. Augustina dialed her cell phone, now concerned about Stanley's progress on the urn. Hon, where are you? Pause. Celia just saw what you saw. Pause. Okay, be careful when you come back. It's out there. Minutes later, the women were still excitedly talking when Stanley walked in from the adjoining garage. He sat. The three women paused, riveted to Stanley. He cleared his throat. I talked to Jean, and he's going to look at where the urn came from. We got it open. What was inside? This was Augustina. A skeleton. Silence. Of? A hand. Feldman darted out of the room. Stanley continued. Jean's not a pathologist. From what he could tell, it looked like a human hand. It was at least perhaps a century old, maybe less. Augustine appaled. We have to get it back to his or her relatives. It's not that simple, of course. It was stashed in there for some reason. And now we have to have the house cleansed, as it came haunted. Stanley pointed outside where he had seen the dark creature. I don't normally believe in stuff like that, but I know what I saw back there. I saw something like a huge dog, Dad, just a few hours ago. Is that what you're referring to? That was probably what mops reacted to and what tore up the box the urn was in, added Augustina. Celia looked terrified. Mom, you said it appeared in your bedroom. It wasn't a dog, something that looked like Vilma. But Vilma, Stanley interrupted, All right, let's not keep rehashing it. I'm hoping Jean hooks up with this woman who knows about the origin of the urn. Once we know, we can move forward with what we have to do next. You mean, how to get rid of the urn? I got rid of it. It's in Jean's office. The thing here should be gone, but obviously it's still... What do you mean, Dad? The urn came with something. Jean called it a guardian spirit. That's probably what you just saw, even though yours no longer here. Okay, we're going to stop at chapter 20 so we can continue next week. Pretty cool story. Pretty cool story. Let me light up my life again here. Um, good book. Good book. Good book. So how did you guys like that today, huh? You guys like that? You guys enjoy that? That's a pretty good book scared of that that's why this is why i don't buy antiques anymore i just don't do antiques i used to antiquities but not anymore nope 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 anyway i'm gonna write this down because we stopped the chapter 20 so i remember for next week so we will continue this next week sorry for the weird reading but like i said when i go to move it up and stuff hang on chapter 20 when i go to move up the page because i'm reading off a pdf the page jumps on me and I'm trying to figure out where I'm at because it, it, the mouse moves it up weird. But otherwise, it's it's, it's, a, it's a really smooth read. The whole book is. Anyway, uh, I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. And uh, tomorrow now, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Remember I this whole reporter gig that I do and I like to like change things around and change things up. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking with Mark Seifer. And he's going to be talking about Nicholas Tesla. So we're going to learn about Tesla's inventions and how, how Tesla came about inventing this stuff and creating it. And we'll know about his um, his young life. It's a lot you don't hear about. And he's done a lot of research into this. So he's going to be here at 6.30 p.m. tomorrow. Pacific. I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. I know it's Sunday night. It's raining. And well, for some people back east it might be snowing. We don't know. It's weird. Winter's coming. But I want to thank everybody for coming. I know it ended up being kind of last minute because computer glitches and stuff. But it happens, right? It happens. So uh, I will see you tomorrow at six thirty p.m. Pacific. Okay. And uh, if if you like what you heard and you're still around and you're listening, click that. If you're watching on Facebook, click that follow button. If you want to follow me on Instagram, which I'm trying to build up my Instagram now too, I'm Ghosty Gal. G H O S T G A L. One word on Instagram. All right. I'm. All, we're also on Twitter under Cal Haunts, and we are at uh, We're at TikTok under California Haunts. (laughs) It's amazing. I can, you know, try to keep all this stuff straight. And, of course, on Facebook, either under my name or under California Haunts, you can find us. But thanks, everybody. And uh, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a good one.